So venerable Vito, it's his, it's his turn to be in America and my turn to be in England. So he's, he's now giving a retreat in uh, Massachusetts and uh, so he told me that he's carried you on through to after enlightenment. Is that right? <laughs> There's nothing more I can say really. <laughs> Now this, just to read you a passage from Joseph Campbell's book on mythology, this is quite an interesting reflection because of um, just trying to put into perspective the, the uh, just the symbolism, Buddhist symbolism that we use because it's a very interesting uh, subject actually, the, the mythology and the symbolism of religion. And so the, um, the in regards to the Buddha's enlightenment, the, the sitting under the, the Bodhi tree has a religious symbol and, the, and then the after enlightenment, the 49 days after the enlightenment, all those, those that series of seven seven days, uh, seven times seven, 49 days after the Buddha's enlightenment in which he would do various meditations. But in the Buddha legend, uh, um, before the enlightenment, when he placed himself on the immovable spot beneath the tree of enlightenment, the creator of the world illusions called Kamamara, life, desire and fear of death, approached to threaten his position but he touched the earth with the fingers of his right hand and as the legend tells, the mighty goddess earth thundered with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars declaring, I bear you witness and the demon fled. The blessed one that night achieved enlightenment and for seven times, seven days remained absorbed in rapture during which time a tremendous tempest arose and a mighty serpent king named Mutalinda we then read, emerging from his place beneath the earth, this is the serpent king Muchalinda, enveloped the body of the Blessed One seven times with its folds, spreading his great hood above his head, saying, let neither cold nor heat nor nuts, flies, winds, sunshine nor creeping creatures come near the Blessed One. Whereafter, when seven days had elapsed and Muchalinda knew that the storm had broken up, the clouds having dispersed, he unwound his coils from the body of the Blessed One and assuming human form with joined hands to forehead did reverence to the Blessed One. In the lore and legend of the Buddha, the idea of release from death received a new psychological interpretation which however did not violate the spirit of its earlier mythic representations. The old motifs were carried to an advanced statement and given fresh immediacy through association with an actual historical character who had illustrated their meaning in his life. Yet the sense of accord remained between the questing hero and the powers of the living world, who like himself were ultimately but transformations of the one mystery of being. Thus in the Buddha legend, as in the old Near Eastern seals, an atmosphere of substantial accord prevails at the cosmic tree, where the goddess and her serpent spouse gave, give support to their worthy son's quest for release from the bondages of birth, disease, old age and death. <clears throat> so this is, the, this is our human theme, isn't it, of the mother, the father, the son carried to its, its universal symbols of the, uh, the, the mother earth the, the nourishing force which is supporting the Buddha in his quest for enlightenment. Before he was enlightened, it was the earth goddess, so the, 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 the form of mother that uh, frightened away the demons, allowing, giving permission for her son to sit in the immovable spot or the axis mundi or the place of enlightenment or the Bodhi tree, 
Then after enlightenment, the, the, the phallic male force is as symbolized by the serpent, Muchalinda, offered protection during a storm, a terrible storm, which, which is in, in, in symbolic terms, in mythological terms, a way of saying that the, the, that, that the forces of the male and female, the father and mother, uh, supporting the, the son in his search for enlightenment and also after his enlightenment the protection that comes from the, just the, the uh, primordial forces, the primordial energy as represented by the serpent. Now it's interesting to compare this with Christian mythology or Christian uh, legends in which the serpent is an enemy and the woman is a temptress that, that, uh, that uh, corrupts Adam and uh, the serpent is the one that corrupts the, the woman. So that in, in, in our own kind of civilization we have our conditioning, religious conditioning, very much have seen the the, we, the female force as a temptation or temptress and the, and the uh, male force or the, the serpent, the power of the serpent as evil. But in the, in the uh, Hindu and Buddhist mythologies, these are the very forces, the primordial forces that give birth to the human condition in which we can uh, have this opportunity to realize the truth, which is the, which was uh, the the story of Gautama the Buddha, the human being, the son, who was enlightened, who be, who became an enlightened one. Well, that contemplate that. <laughs> so that that's not, not just whether like Western minds tend to think, oh, a lot of that's just. Eastern uh, superstition, like the, the Muchalinda, the, the snake, the serpent, protecting the Buddha. I mean, how many of you really <clears throat> find that difficult to understand? Because you must recognize our, our way of thinking tends to be influenced by facts, statistics, scientific rationale. And yet, religious symbols and, uh, are oftentimes the, the very symbols of mythology or ways of presenting universal truths that are talking about something beyond just historical accuracy, statistics, or facts. I mean, our sometimes poverty-stricken minds uh, are a real, like a real desert, arid desert, uh, when we just have to, when we just think in terms of, of facts and statistics alone, isn't it? Where the, the symbolic forms, the art, the mythology is, is coming from a different place in human experience. The myths, the, these are very powerful ways of talking about universal truths. So that nowadays there's much more of an interest in the West in trying to understand or re-understand or come back to the original meaning and purpose of mythology. Joseph Campbell, he, he's quite brilliant at it, but he does not really understand Buddhism, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he says some, some very wrong things about Buddhism, but uh, his general understanding of mythology is quite, quite interesting and profound. So this, this, this symbol of the Bodhi tree, the, the, the bow tree, the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, the immovable spot, the, uh, in, in, in Latin terms, the axis mundi, the universal axis, the world axis or the center. And this is like when we're meditating, uh, that's what we're actually going toward in, as, we, as we let go of, 
the delusions caused through greed, hatred, and delusion, and ignorance, as we, as we let go, we begin to realize that immovable spot, or the, as symbolized by the Bodhi tree, or the Axis Mundi. And this is, this is now the Buddhist terms take it to a very, to a very psychological uh, understanding, because the, you must realize that, that Buddha spoke very much uh, through a psychology, an understanding of the mind. He wasn't speaking in terms of a material world or, or the, or the um, scientific accuracy or, or facts or statistics or, or, his, or history. When, when the Buddha was talking about the world, it's a psychological world. When the world ends, it's the end of a world that was created out of ignorance. It's not the end of a material of the of the material world. And this is where many Westerners become very confused when they read Buddhist uh, literature because they tend to interpret it from a very kind of factual, historical uh, uh, mind. And so when I remember last winter during the retreat, one of the guests uh, had read that Buddhists seek to realize the end of the world. And she was absolutely horrified. <laughs> what am I getting myself into? <laughs> the end of the world. Is that what we're trying to do? Just destroy the world? Because her mind, of course, is taking it from the Western understanding of the world as a material world. But when, when you read these, these Buddhist texts, recognize that when, we're talking, when, when the Buddha is talking about the world, it's the psychological world that is created out of ignorance. And so, our practice is to realize the end of the world. That's not, that's, not a mis, that's not a wrong statement, but the world is not what we think it is. It's the, it's the world that is of, the world of delusion, the world of greed, hatred and delusion that ends. So after the Buddha's enlightenment, they, he had the the, when, before the Enlightenment, when he, when he dared to place himself in the immovable spot, the Bodhi tree, as symbolized by the Bodhi tree, when he dared to sit under that tree, to be enlightened, to be the enlightened one, then the forces of Mara, Gamma Mara, came to chase him away, terrify him, to threaten him in the, the most horrendous ways possible. And of course, this is in... in uh, Buddhist pictorial art in mural uh, paintings in, in uh, temples, you see this oftentimes as a magnificent uh, uh, subject of the Buddha, uh, before he's with the Buddha, sit, uh, the, the, the ascetic Gotama sitting under the Bodhi tree, and all these forces that you can possibly imagine from the most tantalizing, the most horrendous forms uh, aimed at him and uh, and he touches and you see many Buddha mudras are touching the earth. This this one where the Buddha's right hand is touching the earth, and that's a very common mudra in um, in Theravadan Buddhist sculpture, and that is the the sign that Buddha is is uh, asking the earth to bear witness to his right to be enlightened. And uh, then, the, then, of course, the earth is the earth goddess, is a female goddess, in, in mythological terms. The female, or the, the mother earth, uh, frightens away all the demons. She says, I bear witness to the Buddha's right to sit in the immovable spot under the Bodhi tree, to be enlightened. So this is, this is say, symbolic of the right of a human being to be enlightened from the, from the position of our planet Earth. If you want to look at it in, in more modern psychological terms. Then after the Buddha's enlightenment, after that, 
There were 49 days. Gotama, who was now Buddha, the enlightened, remained seated and motionless for seven days, realizing the bliss of Nibbana. And the bliss of Nibbana is the, the bliss of non-attachment. And thereafter rising, he remained standing for seven more days, steadfastly regarding the spot where he had won the fruit of countless deeds of heroic virtue uh, performed in past births. Then for seven days more he paced to and fro along a cloistered path from west to east, extending from the throne beneath the wisdom tree to the place of steadfast gazing. And again for seven days he remained seated in a God-wrought pavilion near to the, to the same place and there reviewed in detail book by book all that is taught in the Abhidhamma Pitaka as well as the whole doctrine of causality. Then for seven days more he sat beneath the Nigroda tree of Sujata's offering, meditating on the doctrine and the sweetness of Nibbana. And according to some books, it was at this time the temptation of the daughters of Mara took place. And then for seven days more, while a terrible storm was raging, the snake king Mutilinda sheltered him with his sevenfold hood. And for seven days more he sat beneath uh, a Rajayatana tree still enjoying the sweetness of liberation and so passed away seven weeks during which the Buddha experienced no bodily wants but fed on the joy of contemplation, the joy of the Eightfold Path and the joy of its fruit, Nibbana. Only upon the last day of the seven weeks he desired to bathe and eat and receiving water and a two-stick from the god Saka the Buddha, the Buddha bathed his face and seated himself at the foot of a tree. Now at that time two Brahmin merchants were travelling with a caravan from Orissa to the Middle Country. And a Deva, who had been a blood relation of the merchants in a former life, stopped the carts and moved their hearts to make an offering of rice and honey cakes to the Lord. They went up to him accordingly, saying, O Blessed One, have mercy upon us and accept this food. Now the Buddha no longer possessed a bowl, and as the Buddhas never received an offering in their hands, he reflected how he should take it. Immediately the four great kings, the regents of the quarters, appeared before him, each of them with a bowl, and in order that none of them should be disappointed, the Buddha received the four bowls and placing them one above the other, made them to be one, showing only the four lines round the mouth, and in this bowl the, the, the Blessed One received the food and ate it and gave thanks. The two merchants took refuge in the Buddha, the, the, the Dhamma and the, and the Sangha, and before professed disciples, and became professed disciples. Then the Buddha rose up and returned again to the tree of Sujata's offering, and there took his seat. And there reflecting upon the depth of the truth which he had found, a doubt arose in his mind whether it would be possible to make it known to others. And this doubt is experienced by every Buddha when he becomes aware of the truth. But Mahabrahma exclaiming, that's the, a god, Mahabrahma exclaiming, Alas, the world will be altogether lost, came thither in haste and with all the Deva hosts and besought the Master to proclaim the truth and he granted their prayer. <clears throat> Now, Yadamoli. <laughs> so in that, in the, then the, not the, say the, the earth goddess, the serpent force, they're representing the, the primordial male, and then the actual divine four uh, divinities of the four directions offered him their bow, these bowls. So in this way, it's, a, it's the symbolic way of expressing the, the, the universality of the Buddha's enlightenment. It was both from the earth, from the primordial energy of planetary life to the, to the divine, the realms of the divinities, plus the uh, Mahabrahma or Brahma Sahampati, whose, whose great compassion was to see that if the Buddha did not teach Dhamma, then the world w would be lost, or there'd be great misery and sorrow in the world. 
but through the compassion of the of the divine divinities uh, that the the Buddha decided and agreed to go forth and teach his his Dhamma. Now we're dealing with these these interesting symbols of the earth and the divine, primordial forces. We're all affected by these, aren't we? Whether you realize it or not. Now going to these different, sitting under these different trees and these contemplations and reflections, this is the, the after the enlightenment, the moment of enlightenment. Then 49 days after enlightenment, the Buddha was involved in the actual uh, enjoying the bliss of liberation, reflecting on the Dhamma uh, in every way possible. So in, in different positions, like he was sitting and then standing and then walking. Um, this, this thorough uh, realization of the deathless truth. Was the, the, and this is number seven uh, and the number 49 are quite significant numbers in, in, in the, as symbols. There's all, uh, these, this, uh, is a mystical number, in fact, number seven. Not sure exactly why it is, but uh, it's used in so many groups of seven are always involved in, in so many different uh, esoteric uh, teachings and formulas. Now there was an occasion when at the end of seven days the Blessed One rose from that concentration and went from the root of the Ajapala Nigrota to the root of the Muchalinda tree. And that's where the, the serpent Muchalinda protected him against the storm. Then after that, he, he, the Blessed One then uttered this exclamation, Seclusion is happiness for one contented, by whom the law is learnt and who has seen, and friendliness towards the world is happiness. For him that is forbearing with live creatures. Disinterest in the world is happiness for him that has surmounted sense desires. But to be rid of the conceit I am, that is the greatest happiness of all. <coughs> so that this, this, this I am, <coughs> the happiness we, we have as human beings, the happiness of seclusion, when you, when your hermetic life can be extremely blissful, happiness of the family, of the community, the giving, the generosity, the love of others, the the happiness that uh, when one has uh, seen the world for what it is and is no longer fascinated or or uh, enamored with the world. And this is the world of, that we create out of ignorance. And, but the highest happiness of all is to be free from the conceit I am. So this is the, the I am, this sense of I am that comes out of the human heart through ignorance, through not understanding Dhamma. Then this is the misery, the plane of misery that we create, a whole, a whole world worlds of misery and suffering we create out of that basic illusion of I am as a separate being just through the appearances of separation on this sensory plane. 
There was an occasion then when the Blessed One rose from that concentration and went from the Muttalinda tree to the Rajayatana tree. And he sat at the root of the Rajayatana tree for seven days in one session, feeling the pleasure of deliverance. Now on that occasion two merchants, Tapusa and Baluka, were travelling by the road from Ugala. A deity and so forth, these two merchants paid honour to him and they were his first disciples. And that's when the four divine kings, the, the four Maharajas, offered their bowls. There was an occasion when, at the end of seven days, the Blessed One rose from that concentration and went from the root of the Rajayatana tree to the Ajapala Nigroda, the goat herd's banyan tree. Now while the Blessed One was alone in retreat, this thought arose in him. There are five spiritual faculties that when maintained in being and developed merge in the deathless, reach to the deathless and end in the deathless. What five? They are the faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and understanding. When we, we covered these last year with the Satta Viriya Sati Samadhi Panya, the five Pala or the five Indriya. Then Brahma Sahampati became aware in his mind of the thought in the Blessed One's mind and as soon as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or, flexed, or flex his extended arm, he vanished in the Brahma world and appeared before him. He arranged his upper robe on one shoulder and raising his hands, palms together toward the Blessed One, he said, So it is, Blessed One, so it is, Sublime One. When these five faculties are maintained in being and developed, they merge in the deathless reach to the deathless and end in the deathless. There was once a time, Lord, when I lived the holy life under the enlightened one Kasapa. There I was known as the Bhikkhu Sahaka. It was by maintaining in being and developing these five faculties that my lust for sensual desires faded away and that on the disillusion of the body after death I reappeared in a happy destination in the Brahma world. There I am known now as the Brahma Sahampati. So it is, Blessed One, so it is, Sublime One. I know and I see how these five faculties, when maintained in being and developed, merge in the deathless, reach to the deathless and end in the deathless. This is the, the when I first started meditation, in fact, after I'd ordained as a Samanera in Thailand, I couldn't speak any Thai, and the, no one could speak any English, except there was one monk who spoke a little bit of English. My preceptor, the, the monk that ordained me, gave me my instruction, and he gave me these five indriyas, five faculties. He said, Satta, Viriya, Sati, Samadhi, Panya. And the monk that translated them said, Satta, uh, faith, Viriya, effort, Sati, mindfulness, Samadhi, concentration, Panya, wisdom. And then he, then he tried to say and that these, it's through sati, mindfulness, uh, faith and wisdom, which is the, or the first and the last of the five, and then, then uh, they kind of balance each other, and then the uh, virya and samadhi balance each other. And that's all the instruction I had. And I spent a long time contemplating that. Mm-hmm. Several months, in fact, just on that. That's all I had. <laughs> At first, I just thought, well, then maybe I'll just use it as a mantra. So I just kept saying, Satta Viriya Sati Samadhi Panya, Satta Viriya Sati Samadhi Panya, over and over, which helped to calm the mind. But then the actual reflection, and this is, this is the significance of Buddhist teaching, is that it's a teaching for contemplation, reflection on the way things are. So it's not just to tranquilize your mind. You could, I could use the Sata Virya Sati Samadhi Panya as a mantra, which has its calming effects. But I didn't understand, didn't understand it. It's just uh, words that I didn't know their meaning, or had, you know, didn't really understand, uh, were vaguely understood. Then the actual reflection started as I started contemplating what is faith or sada because we have so many we think we know what these words are don't we when we say faith 
is such an ordinary word in the English language that we think we know what it means. Just because it's, it's a common word, or panya, wisdom, the ordinary word. Uh, concentration, mindfulness is a bit baffling, it's not, never thought about mindfulness at all till I became a Buddhist. It was not a, not a word I think ever used in any circle that I traveled. in your life. These aren't just abstract psychological terms that relate to something uh, in, in some intellectual abstraction or theory, but they're relating to the way life actually is, the way it is for us. And if we, uh, in this, the Brahma Sahampati, notice that this symbol of the, the Brahma Sahampati, the Brahma represents in Buddhist sim symbology that, that which is pure. Now Brahma is not enlightened. Mahabrahma is not enlightened. But he's pure. He's, 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 he's pure of heart. And uh, he, he knows, he knows many things, but he's not, he's not a Buddha, he's not enlightened being. But notice that this purity when in the, just if you're looking at this as mythology or symbolism, that it's this purity from the heavens, as the Brahma, Brahma Loka, the world above, or the heavenly realms, or the realms of purity, divinity, are very much encouraging the, the Buddha, the, who in, is a, in a human form, uh, toward, uh, say, towards his realizations and encouraging or affirming or, or where, where the Brahma in a previous life had uh, as a bhikkhu had used the, the five indriya uh, and, and understood it he, only, he went instead out of the purity of his intention and his understanding he went to become the Mahabrahma but he didn't become a Buddha but at the time of the Gautama Buddha then this, then this divine force is there encouraging all that is good, wholesome, pure, all these energies. When we, when we are using wisdom and mindfulness, and and all, then, then all that is good, benevolent, supportive, both from, the, both from the planetary life, the primordial energies, the, the, uh, the uh, heavenly realms, they come to support and encourage and guide us toward full enlightenment, towards, obviously, Brahma Sahampati encouraged the Buddha when he, when he realized that Buddha was, had this doubt. This teaching, this, this that I realized is so subtle that nobody will ever understand it. I can't think of any way of teaching this so that there was, there was, anyone would be able to comprehend it. So that doubt in the Buddha's mind and the Brahma Sampati then realizing that doubt, that please, you know, for the welfare of those with only a little dust in their eyes, please try to teach for those beings. And then the Buddha agreed to do that. Notice in uh, one of the common, one in uh, forms of the Buddha, in Buddha uh, imagery, is, I don't know if they have one here, but with Muchalinda, uh, the Naga, uh, the Buddha is sitting on the coils of this snake. It's a bit eerie, isn't it, to Western mind? The Buddha is sitting on the coils of this snake with this he seven-headed cobra or Naga covering, protecting the Buddha from the, from the wind and the rain and the elements. Now notice that to us the, the serpent forces are oftentimes represented in, a, in our civilization as evil because reptilian energies and, and, uh, and the serpent stand for some kind of primordial energy or force that can go wild, that it can be incredibly destructive, isn't it? If you notice uh, modern uh, kind of like uh, people that, like Hell's Angels, people that, 
they try to live very destructive lives, violent destructive lives, often assume kind of reptilian symbols in their, what they wear, like they like to wear leather or, or cold, hard, spiky type of, of uh, paraphernalia, don't they? they because, and, and they have a kind of demonic or reptilian look sometimes, cold-blooded, like they, they would uh, kill you just for the pleasure of, of killing you, like a crocodile would, would uh, gobble down a baby without feeling any compassion or, uh, or sorrow at the death of a lovely child. So that rep reptilian energy to us is a bit frightening, isn't it? Because it's, a, a pro it's a, a, an energy that can be very destructive and wild and out of control. But notice that the symbol of the Buddha sitting on the serpent, actually sitting there in a state of calm, he's not frightened. <laughs> he's not saying, let me out of here, like we would say. <laughs> he's sitting there in, in, in samadhi, in calm, concentrated mind, collected, the serpent protecting him. Now this means very much that the that the, even these primordial forces and energies, these wild, that destructive urges and forces that can, that can affect our lives, when there is enlightenment, when there is Buddha, then these forces are tamed. They're protective rather than destructive. So in, in Buddhist symbolism, in temples, Buddhist temples, they oftentimes use serpents, nagas, uh, in Thai temples, if you notice, one of the great symbols on the roofs is the Naga, protective force. Is a, Naga is a, is a dragon or a snake, it's a, a big uh, auspicious serpent. And the, all the, the, these Nagas are auspicious beings, they're not wild, destructive beings, because they are protectors of, the, of, of those who, who live moral lives, who keep morality, and uh, of enlightened beings. So that in this way you have a sense of the arising of faith, trust in Dhamma, the, the, the kind of fearlessness that comes from that when you realize that when you do put yourself within those refuges of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then you have the great protection from the divine, the heavenly realms, from the Mother Earth herself to the Serpent primordial, the, the wild primordial energies, and then protective rather than destructive. I remember one time in Thailand, uh, uh, one, um, a soldier came to see Ajahn Chah, uh, an army uh, man who was going, who was going off to, to fight a battle somewhere. So he said, please, venerable sir, could you give me some uh, little medallions with Buddha on them, um, kind of auspicious medals to wear, so I will be protected from bullets and from all that kind of thing, from from the danger to my life. And the and uh, Ajahn Chah made, made it great peace. He said these, he said these are really won't protect you, you know. He said what is it that will protect? He said morality is the greatest protection. <laughs> <laughs> the three refuges and the five precepts. So that's the great. That's real protection. These things, you know, they might help a bit. I don't know, but they're not to be trusted. He said, but the the three refuges and the five precepts. He says that definitely will help you, protect you. And then this notice that the the, the enlightenment, the the human being enlightened is is no longer frightened or worried by the things that happen around you. Even though they can, and what would be more terrifying to us than, than a huge kind of enormous serpent coming around and, and wrapping its coils around us in a thunderstorm. I mean, we'd have a heart attack, most of us, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd have to, after, even if nothing, no harm was done to us, after it was over, we'd have to have psychiatric care for at least ten years <laughs> to get over that. <laughs> so that this, this, because of our fear and our, our tendency to mistrust, isn't it? we would see that as a, as a dangerous threat, something to mistrust. But notice the Buddha was, was 
was not frightened was, was, uh, and was protected by that primordial force. And then the div- divinities from above came to help later, offering the food, the, the alms bowl, the, the lovely Brahma Sahampati, thinking of our welfare, because Brahma Sahampati could see that you and I would be in a terrible state. I would be in a terrible state if it wasn't for Buddhist teaching. Now, while the Buddha was alone in retreat, this thought arose in him. The path, namely the four foundations of mindfulness, is a path that goes in one way only, to the purification of creatures, to the surrounding, surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, to the disappearance of pain and grief, to the attainment of the true goal, to the realization of Nibbana. What are the four? A bhikkhu should abide contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Or he should abide contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Or he should abide contemplating consciousness as consciousness, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Or he should abide contemplating mental objects as mental objects, ardent, fully aware, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Then Brahma Sahampati came and expressed his approval as before. That's the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, the Gaya, Vedana, Jitta, Tamma, in the Pali, the, the body in the body, feelings in feelings, uh, consciousness in consciousness, and mental objects as mental objects. And notice that this four foundations of mindfulness, your, your mindfulness and the, is, is the reflecting, recollecting ability to see these things as they are, the body in the body. You're not contemplating a body as an abstraction. You're contemplating this body as it is. You're not, you're not, when you're contemplating your body as it is, it's not my body anymore, it's just a body, isn't it? The, the view of my body comes in after that, when, you're, when the habit forms of this is my body is something we add to the body. But if you're just reflecting on the body in the body, the body is just the body. It's not my body, it's not, uh, we're not, we're not judging it, we're not saying it's beautiful or ugly or it's male or female or it, it, it's uh, old or young or anything, we're not criticizing, judging, complaining or doing anything with it, but recognizing exactly what it is. The mind, the, the mind is aware of it, the body as the body. And so in this reflection then you're, you can actually begin to, to, to look at the body rather from, than from the view of conceit, I am, and vanity or, or aversion and disgust for it. You're looking at it, investigating it as it really is with feeling, happiness, asuka, atuka matuka and dukkha, happiness or the positive, the neutral and negative. You're contemplating feelings and feelings. When a happy feeling is a happy, you're seeing it as a happy feeling rather than grasping it and I'm happy. Or or a miserable one or a neither pleasant nor miserable one is the knowing of things as our feeling is this way, the Vedana is as it is, it's impermanent, it's anicca, it's dukkha, it's anatta. Then a consciousness in consciousness or the jitta. You're aware of of this that we are that there's this consciousness. You're contemplating consciousness. You're not trying to, to to think about consciousness as being anything, but it's this way. We're, the consciousness is this way. So you're you're reflecting on 
what consciousness actually is and experience rather than interpreting it from the I am position of I'm conscious or I should be more conscious than I am or I, uh, all the additives that we might have in regard to consciousness, we're seeing it as it really is. There's consciousness, there's feeling, there's the body, the being of the body, and the, and the tamanupasana, satipatthana, the, the fourth foundation of mind bliss, is, the, here it's, it's translated as mental objects. Dhamma is, is what we, how we see, how we look, the way things really are. We no longer, like if we see it from the personal view, then it's my body, my feelings, my consciousness. But from Dhammanupasana, from the inside into Dhamma, then it's Dhamma. It's as it is. It's not, it's the I am is not something that we create onto it, except only conventional, for conventional purposes only. It's a, something we use on a conventional level only, but it's no longer caught in the delusions uh, from ignorance. So that that th- one there's the realization of dhamma rather than the ignorant view of I am, which tends to corrupt and distort the body, the feelings, and consciousness that we have as a result of birth. So that there's the the five uh, five faculties. And Brahma Sahampati gave his, that's right, you're on the right track. Then the four foundations of mindfulness, Brahma Sahampati came and expressed his approval as before. Now while the Blessed One was alone in retreat, the thought arose in him, I am freed from that penance. I am quite freed from that useless penance. Absolutely sure and mindful, I have attained enlightenment. Then Mara, the evil one, became aware in his mind of the thought in the Blessed One's mind, and he went to him and spoke these stanzas. You have forsaken the ascetic path by means of which men purify themselves. You are not pure, you fancy you are pure. The path of purity is far from you. Then the Blessed One recognized Mara, the evil one, and he answered him in stanzas, I know these penances to gain the deathless, whatever kind they are, to be as vain, as ships' oars and rudder on dry land. But it is owing to development of virtue, concentration and understanding that I have reached enlightenment, and you, exterminator, have been vanquished now. Then Mara the evil one knew, the blessed one knows me, the sublime one knows me, sad and disappointed, he vanished at once. So that was. Now from that went on the, the, the final test of Mara. So notice Brahma Sahampati's been approving out his insights, expressed his approval, and then Mara comes. That big question, the doubt in the mind, placing that doubt. You you are you are mis, you're misguided. You're wrong. The path of purity is far from you. And the Buddha recognized that as Mara. I know these penances. Before, remember, the Buddha was involved in, in asceticism before he was enlightened. He, after he left the, the life of the court and the palace, he went into six years of very uh, hard ascetic practices. And these are called the penances, to gain the deathless, to realize the truth uh, by, by torturing himself by denying desire, by suppressing, by, uh, suppress, by repressing everything, by only taking what is unpleasant and painful as, a, as a, something that you do. But in this point, the Buddha was a Buddha, he was enlightened, so that this temptation, this great doubt that the Buddha was, was uh, raising before him was seen clearly for what it is. I know you, Mara. And so the Blessed One, then the Blessed One knows me, the Sublime One knows me, Mara said and gave up. Sad and disappointed, he vanished at once. Now while the Blessed One was alone in retreat, this thought arose in him. He lives un this thought arose in him. He lives unhappily, who has nothing to venerate and obey. 
But what monk or Brahmin is there under whom I could live honoring and respecting him? And then he thought, I could live under another monk or a Brahmin honoring and respecting him in order to perfect an unperfected code of virtue or code of concentration or code of understanding or code of deliverance or code of knowledge and vision of deliverance. But I do not see in this world with its deities, its maras and its divinities in this generation with its monks and Brahmins, with its princes and men, any monk or Brahmin in whom these ideas are more perfected than in myself, under whom I could live, honoring and respecting him. But there is this law discovered by me. Suppose I live under that, honoring and respecting that. Then Brahma Sahampati became aware in his mind of the thought in the Blessed One's mind. He appeared before the Blessed One. Lord, it is good. The Blessed Ones in past ages, accomplished and fully enlightened, lived under the law or the Dhamma, uh, here they translate Dhamma as the law, honoring and respecting that. And those in future ages will do so too. So Dhamma, this, the, I think the word, English word law is, is not such a inspiring word, but the uh, Dhamma uh, is a word that I think you all have heard enough to be able to see that as the, the truth of the way it is, a universal truth. Not a personal, it's not, it's, not, it's not couched in personality or in cultural values. Dhamma, if you, if you really can appreciate what that really is through meditation, through practice, it's universal truth. And we do the best we can with English words trying to convey that. But we're, we're not pointing to the actual definitions in English or trying to, to see it uh, that even the Pali words are are, are the truth themselves. They're the, the uh, conventions we use towards realization of truth, realization of the law. Now while the Blessed One was alone in retreat, this thought arose in him. This law that I have attained is so profound and hard to see, hard to discover. It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all, not attainable by mere ratiocination, subtle for the wise to experience. But this uh, generation relies on attachment, relishes attachment, delights in attachment. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth. That is to say, specific conditionality, dependent arising, and it is hard to see this truth, that is to say, stilling of all formations, relinquishing of the essentials of existence, exhaustion of craving, fading of lust, cessation, nibbana. And if I taught the law, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Thereupon, there came to him spontaneously these stanzas never heard before. Enough of teaching of the law, that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those that live in lust and hate. Men died in lust, and whom a cloud of darkness laps will never see. What goes against the stream is subtle deep and hard to see, abstruse. Considering thus, his mind favoured inaction and not teaching the law. Then it occurred to Brahma Sahampati, who became aware in his mind of the thought in the Blessed One's mind, the world the world will be lost. The world will be utterly lost, for the mind of the Perfect One or the Dittakada accomplished and fully enlightened favors in action and not teaching the law. Then as soon as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, Brahma Sahampati vanished in the Brahma world and appeared before the Blessed One. He arranged his robe on one shoulder and putting his right knee on the ground and raising his hands, palms together towards the Blessed One, he said, Lord, let the Blessed One teach the law let the Sublime One teach the law. There are creatures with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the law. Some of them will gain final knowledge of the law. When Brahma Sahampati had said this, he said further in, in verse, In Magadha there has appeared till now impure law thought out by men still stained. Open the deathless gateway, let them hear the law the Immaculate has found. Ascend, O sage, the tower of the law, 
And just as one sees all the folk around who stand upon a solid pile of rock, survey, O sorrowless, all-seeing sage, this human breed engulfed in sorrowing, that birth has at its mercy an old age. Arise, O hero, victor, knowledge-bringer, free from all debt and wander in the world. Proclaim the law for some, O blessed one. Or proclaim the law, for some, O blessed one, will understand. The blessed one listened to Brahma Sahampati's pleading. Out of compassion for creatures, he surveyed the world with the eye of an enlightened one. Just as in a pond of blue, red, or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water, thrive immersed in the water without coming up out of it, and some other lotuses that are born and grow in the water rest on the water's surface, and some other lotuses that are born and grow in the water come right up out of the water and stand clear, unwetted by it. So too he saw creatures with little dust on their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and dull faculties, with good fa qualities and bad qualities, easy to teach and hard to teach, and some who dwelt seeing fear in the other world and blame as well. When he had seen, he replied, Wide open are the portals of the deathless, let those who hear show faith. If I was minded to tell not the sublime law I know, t'was that I, was, I saw vexation in the telling. And then Brahma Sahampati thought, I have made it possible for the law to be taught by the Blessed One. And after he had paid homage to him, keeping him on the right, he vanished at once. So that, this is the... In, in um, that's another of the Buddhist symbols, is the lotus. This, if you see, this oftentimes in um, illustrations, uh, Buddhist illustrations of these lotuses, some under the water, some <coughs> at the surface, some rising above, recognizing that, that in this realm there are all different potentials. And the actual enlightenment teaching of the Buddha was for those with only a little dust. And then there, then there was the teaching, more or less the, the teaching of morality or of, or of, of generosity. So in, in um, traditional way of expression, the dana sila bhavana, or the, the three, the, the, the generosity for those that can't even be refrained from doing evil things. There's in Buddhist countries an encouragement of generosity. As a, dana uh, is a highly exalted uh, virtue in Buddhist countries, the generousness. So in, in all Buddhist countries you find tremendous generosity. People are, because that is a virtue that is greatly admired. Then the sila, they might be where the lotus is on the surface of the water. It's still touching and wetted by the by the maybe the muddy by the bog or the pond. But it's on the surface now. So sila is is uh, say from the ability to refrain, taking on some a responsibility for your life as a human being, living with your families or uh, your professions, the work it does. Uh, it's just learning how to live as a decent, morally responsible human being in the society and families you live in, refraining from actions and speech which cause harm, a division to others. And then the bhavana is the Buddhist word for the development of the path of meditation. And that's if there's dana, if there's generosity, that development and sila, then the bhavana, as one begins to realize that even the world at its very best is still unsatisfying to us, then we begin to realize that our kind of sole aim and intention is to transcend it, to get beyond just the birth and death, birth, old age, sickness, death, changing, forms and undependable conditions of the sensory world, of the body, the feelings, the consciousness. So what time is it now?
So if you have a short break, those of you who have to uh, catch trains, feel free to do so. And for those of you who want to stay on and ask questions, uh, please do.